This is essential. 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 This is essential audio. Welcome to the Money Pot. I'm Sanjeev Kalita, editor in chief at Money 2020, and I'm here with Rachel Morrissey, our executive producer. How's it going, Rachel? Are you recovering from the Money 2020 show in Vegas? Yeah,、uh, recovering is the right word to use. I'm doing okay. It's it's such a funny time of year for us because we've just finished our big show in Vegas. Things feel like they're winding down with Thanksgiving and the holidays around the corner, but there's still so much to do here at Money 2020 HQ. I mean, this industry just never rests. You're so right. When it starts getting towards the end of the year, I always start to feel nostalgic about the year that's gone. Everyone's writing their end of year lists for their favorite movies, TV shows, and albums. I always like to think about all of the things that have happened in our world of fintech. Oh yeah, I love doing that too. In fact, I was just thinking about this recently. Can you believe that the GameStop investment story was right at the start of this year? I mean, it feels like it was simultaneously just last week and like. Five years ago, <laughs> you're so right. I I know there's been a lot of fallout, which even for an industry which is pretty fast moving, has been surprising for a lot of people. I actually spoke to someone recently whose business was impacted in a big way by the GameStop investment story, but not in a way that you might expect. Oh, well, it might be in a way I expect because I might know the person who you spoke to recently. Was it the conversation you had with Stephen Sykes? COO of Public dot com in the very slickly branded Money Pot recording booth at Money Twenty Twenty USA. You you got me, Rachel. <laughs> yes, it was. I was sad I wasn't able to join you in the booth, but I gotta say you look very professional sitting there behind that mic in that soundproof glass case. Yeah, it definitely felt you know a little bit weird, X Men style prison. You know, for Magneto when you're on the inside looking out. But it was cool to see our shows branding all over the space. Our producer Roland Badenham was in the booth with me, so with his British accent, calm demeanor, and smarts, I thought I was in there with Professor X. <laughs> but, but but anyway, yes, I was speaking to Stephen Sykes and his company Public. Actually, benefited a lot from the fallout of the GameStop Robinhood events. Really? I mean, why was that? Well, Public is dealing with a similar field to Robinhood. Breaking down barriers to stocks and trading to help people who traditionally wouldn't know how to get involved get involved. So when the whole world became aware of retail investing through the news reporting on GameStop, suddenly there was a huge influx of people trying to get involved. And fortunately for public, they were one of the biggest retail investment apps that wasn't Robinhood. So within weeks, public racked up more than one million members. And was valued at one billion dollars. Well, right place, right time, right. Well, I, I think they would prefer to think that they'd set themselves up well enough to grab an opportunity when it came along. Sure, potato, potato. So, what did you talk about with Stephen Sykes? Well, he actually has a really interesting backstory for how he even got into fintech. So, I wanted to explore that a little bit, but also to understand how public is navigating the fairly tricky minefield of retail investment, meme stocks, and crypto. But I started by asking him about his first experience with investing. My first exposure to、uh, the money management world was probably buying USAA mutual funds when I was a teenager in like a custodial account. I think my parents wanted to 
you know, just show me what investing was. It was probably a couple hundred bucks, right? And it was, you know, I had the choice. Hey, do I want to invest in the large cap growth USAA mutual fund or the precious metals USA mutual fund? And she, they, you know, my, my mom and dad let me choose sort of which of the sectors uh, that I was most interested in. And so that was my first exposure. But really, I think where, where I first really caught the bug for investing was uh, when I was a junior in college. Oh, wow. I mean, I have to say our childhood experiences of learning about investing could not be more different. My family was very academically minded. We talked about economics on a macro level, but we really never spoke about personal investing and following the stock market was never a part of my family's language. I mean, the closest I got to investing was pooling my money with friends to buy fries and Coke at the mall. Yeah, I agree. I wouldn't say that Stephen's introduction to investing is the most common way people learn about stocks, but it is interesting to track just how much that guided him going forward. And I do think that this reflects the mindset that public is trying to promote to make investing seem less rare, less elite. Oh, okay. In reflection, I'm sure everyone wishes that they'd had an investment guru instructing us from when we were children. A few shares in Coca-Cola and a few in Apple in the 90s would have set me up just fine. Yeah, while public aren't guaranteeing that (laughs) they'll guide you to the next Apple, they do think that lowering the bar of becoming an investor is pretty vital for long-term financial health and one of their core missions. We want people to get started investing, and then we believe by getting started investing, putting their first dollars to work, they're going to learn by doing. And then we also have a really great community that's native to the to the app where people can discuss their investing and, and investments. And we think the combination of giving the opportunity to learn by doing at pretty low cost and be able to interact with people that sort of follow all parts of the, the sort of uh, sophistication spectrum um, gives them an opportunity to become better investors. And so we're, we're proud to partner with them on that pathway. And we view one of our sort of the most important function that we provide is actually like helping those relatively new investors actually get get to a place where they're doing, they're in really fundamentally sound investments that give them sort of the best risk-adjusted return op- you know, opportunity in the long run. You know, this is another point. There are sound investing principles. I mean, Stephen had the guidance of his parents and the safety net for experimentation. For those that don't, investing feels like a foreign language. The idea of the app being a partner in investing, helping to teach sound principles, is enticing as a tool for financial literacy. Yeah, it it borders on the idea of financial advocacy, because instead of you simply entering the Wild West of investing, it helps you find people with similar interests and walks you through investing language by providing community it hopes to lower the intimidation factor and increase the educational provisions for beginners. Stephen compared first-time investor experience to that of a first-generation college experience. Many of our members are the first investors in their family or in their community. And actually, it's interesting to me to see how important the public community is in helping those people feel included and actually get started because they don't have an offline community that they can lean on to learn about investing and things like that. So instead they found a sort of inclusive online community. And I think that's, that sort of opportunity has surprised me. I think, you know, we talk, we talk a lot about, you know, uh, you know, sort of first time, uh, you know, people going to college for the first time in their family, right? Like that's yeah. a big trend. And something that's been celebrated. I think we're seeing the same sort of thing in investing. The 
first time investor within their family or community is it's a new phenomenon. I mean, it's it's you know meaningful percentages of of the public user base. Well, I think that's interesting. I'm not a heavy investor. That's largely because I wasn't taught to be and never had it modeled for me. I have a brother who has invested and does pretty well, but is generally self-taught with some trial and error. This is a trend we see a lot with investing apps, and it's part of why financial literacy is so important. Yeah, but as you said, I think this borders on financial advocacy, which seems way more attainable than financial literacy. I mean, I understand the push for financial literacy, but we always seem to want to fix every issue with a high school class or a test. In reality, a lot of financial literacy training is wasted because the principles of it just don't stick. Like a lot of knowledge that isn't immediately applied, it's learned for a short term and then it's just discarded. I think that these app developers would agree with what you're saying about the nature of learning about personal finance. And we see that even in Stephen's own narrative. I think it is top of mind for the kind of experience they want to create. So like, let's set studying aside, but again, it's learning by doing and it's learning from people. And, you know, many of us had the opportunity to learn from our family, friends that we grew up with. But for people that didn't have access to that or just frankly wanted a sort of different different take on the community, have found that in public. And so I think it was very much the idea and, and the realization that this this community model that we'd seen proliferating in other parts of of uh sort of the online ecosystems um, could be put to, brought to bear on this specific problem of, of helping people get started and be better investors. So as we're talking about learning by doing and apps, I can't help but think about how video games were used as a teaching tool when I was a kid. We had games like Lemonade Stand and Oregon Trail to teach math and history concepts. And of course, you were awarded with points for certain choices and basically I'm wondering, what are they thinking about gamification? When I think about games, it always comes back to D&D for me. And the full 5 by 5 grid of all of the different moral alignments going from lawful on the left to chaotic on the right and evil on the bottom to good at the top. Yeah, I remember that. And for those who weren't nerds like us, we mean Dungeons and Dragons. So when I asked Steven, it reminded me of the grid. I'm a pragmatist. Uh, I start from the place of the U.S. stock market is the greatest wealth creation mechanism known to man. And in order for people to harness that power, they have to get started. And so the, the most important dollar people put to work is the first one. And it almost doesn't matter to me as much whether that first dollar or that first hundred dollars, that first thousand dollars is sort of optimally invested or not. What matters to me is that they get started and start to build that muscle of, of long-term investing. And gamification, I think, is neither good nor bad. Mm. It's a tool that actually can be used to help people get started investing and can help people feel more confident as investors. So Stephen thinks gamification is generally a lawful neutral. Yeah, but I'm not so sure I, I would have used that. In my opinion, I think that this falls, it, it is neutral, but I'd also say on the vertical axis, it's impure. Well, that's only one rung above the evil. That's true. And I'm not saying that it's evil, but the behaviors incentivized could lead to unintended negative consequences. 
if left unchecked. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. And it's also only one below neutral in the vertical direction, too. So that makes sense. Happy I could help. (laughs) I'm always glad when I can let my geek side shine. Oh, we definitely do that on this show. I mean, not to beat the Dungeons and Dragons analogy to death or anything, but the entire nature of the public community strikes me as similarly dependent on users. I mean, just like a good game of D&D, the creativity and ideas of the dungeon master are necessary, but so is the creativity and imagination of the players. I think that's true about everything around the current mimetic nature of retail investing and something that they work to foster. So we have a, um, a lot of sort of homegrown sort of creators, right? People that are, that are started as just, you know, run-of-the-mill community members that now have really grown up creating content in the community and talk about the markets and they're investing in different positive investment habits and really reinforce the community. We've seen a lot, a lot of that. The other thing that we see is uh, a really clear correlation between um, a given investor's diversification and how much time they spend in the community. So the more time they spend in the community, again, it becomes a really helpful discovery mechanism and a way for them to sort of learn good investment principles and practices. And so we'll see very clearly the number of securities held, their shift towards ETFs actually, which are obviously very highly diversified products themselves. We see both of those two things correlate with time spent in the community, which is really cool. So they are very reliant on the community members and homegrown creators, creating a platform that allows for those creators and still maintains safety and ingenuity. I was intrigued about the skills necessary to lead and create a safe platform and still allow for maximum creativity. So I asked Stephen about his time in the military, and his time as cavalry officer has informed the kind of team he builds. If you're going to build a team and a, and a model that can support being able to put, again, relatively inexperienced new soldiers into that degree of independence, as a leader, you have to learn how to, one, create the context, and two, how to communicate efficiently and effectively uh, that they can be successful and understand sort of the full mission and be able to operate. And of course, underneath all of that is just a deep, deep layer of trust. Yep. And yeah. being able to build those things in a team is critically important. And I think it matches exactly how we try to lead our teams in public is focused very much on finding fantastic people, putting them, giving them the full context on the firm and what we're trying, what we're trying to achieve, setting expectations for them in their role, and then letting them go do mm-hmm. and sort of being clear about what the communication expectations are, but really staying out of their way and letting them go operate independently for, for you know as much or as little time as they need. Just like he's adopted the way to incorporate the best of his team's independence with good communication, he has basically become a dungeon master of his team. And in turn, they are reflecting the best of a good D&D game. So Sanj, before we go, I gotta know, which Dungeons & Dragons character type were you growing up? I loved being a cleric. I really liked the action part of D&D, but I was also into the moral side of it, too. And what would you say I would be? Whoa, that's such a minefield. Maybe (laughs) a bard. They They like to tell stories and use their artistic skills to influence magical effects on people. I think that's a very polite way of saying my stories make people fall asleep, but I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) And that is it for this episode of The Money Pot. We'd like to thank Stephen Sykes for being our guest this week. We'd also like to thank our very own Professor X with slightly more hair, Roland Bottenham. And if you like The Money Pot, please leave us a review in iTunes to help others find the show. 
If you have any ideas for other topics you'd like us to cover, please reach out to us at podcast at money2020.com. Thank you for listening. This is Essential. 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 This is Essential Audio.